What a privilege it is to be here. I bid greetings to you, James, and myself, Shane Waters, pastor at Sovereign Grace. We're thankful for this congregation, Pastor Waters. We're no relation. I don't think he accepts me. It's not the other way around. I accept him, but he, on occasion, he'll just say, okay, you're a little too much for me. But, uh, but it is a great blessing to be here. I know that you have prayed for us many times, and you know of our congregation there, Sovereign Grace Baptist Church in Jacksonville. My understanding is that Tyler is at a Sovereign Grace this morning as well, over in Butts County. And so you guys are just getting all kinds of Sovereign Grace, which is, is you can't get enough. You'll never have enough of that. So we're thankful for that, and what a blessing it is. Um, I do appreciate your prayers, and know that we pray for you as well, and have been praying for not only what God's doing here, and it's such a blessing. Um, the Lord's growing you guys not only numerically but also spiritually in so many ways and it's good to hear that and we'll continue to pray to that end well brothers and sisters let's gather this morning we've gathered here this morning to open god's word together so if you would find your way to the book of ecclesiastes the book of ecclesiastes some of you have not been there for a while but um, i would encourage you to find your place there in ecclesiastes and as you turn there turn to chapter 7 Chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes. As I was thinking through, as John asked uh, for me to come and to be with you today, and was thinking through what would be helpful for your heart this morning, for this congregation, um, I land here a bit selfishly. Uh, this sermon is just as much for my heart this morning. Um, we do not live in a pristine World, We live in a world that's very broken. I was with Rick and a few others down, just a few others, down in Fort Myers at the Founders Conference this past week, and what a glorious time it was to praise God and to hear good teaching and preaching. But as I was there, um, got a phone call from a member in our congregation. Their baby that was born just a week ago is in the hospital this morning. They thought the baby was going to have to have heart surgery today, but they're going to have to have heart surgery on Tuesday. Um, walking through with that family with that. Have another family that just had a baby, another family, rejoice in that. That poor girl had two full days of labor before she had that baby. Tough, tough. But they're young. They can do it, those young ones. And so we're excited and thrilled about that. We have an adoption this coming week. And uh, one of our families is adopting a, a, little, a little boy, Reed. We're thankful for that. Got a phone call from a family that had left our congregation about two years ago. And the husband called me, and, or the dad called me and said that his son, which is the age of my daughter, 21 years old, commit, committed suicide last week. And so we walk through these things, don't we? We rejoice with those who rejoice, the adoptions, the babies. We weep with those who weep, that mom and dad that are sitting at the hospital in Wolfson, North Carolina, in the Wolfson's Hospital, the children's hospital there in North Carolina. And, we, and we're trying to understand what is it that the Lord's doing? How do we live our lives um, in this world that gives us such wonderful blessings, but also brings to us so many just heart-wrenching sorrows. With that, we come to the book of Ecclesiastes. And at the beginning of Ecclesiastes, we know the theme is right at the beginning of the book. It says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. But you found your place there in chapter 7. If you notice there in chapter 7, we're actually parachuting right into the middle of this book. And not only that, but we're parachuting right into the middle of a chapter of this book, right? So let's take a little bit of time and catch up what is going on here 
and let us look together. I want us to look together at one verse this morning and spend some time doing what this verse is calling us to do. And that is to contemplate, to meditate, to, to, to spend some time reflecting on these things of God, the very providence of God, if you will. So chapter 7, verse 13, that's where we're going to land this morning. That's where I want us to end up. But before we get there, I want us to look at the context of where we are here in chapter 7. Again, in the middle of the book of Ecclesiastes, in the middle of this chapter, I want us to find our bearings and get up to this place. Verse 13 of chapter 7 says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Let us, let's pray together before we actually dive into God's word together. So if you would, bow with me and let's pray. Almighty God, Father and maker of heaven and earth, you alone are worthy of all praise and glory and honor. Blessed be your name. Your name and your name alone deserve all praise, glory, and honor. We gather this morning, Lord, confessing that we are so often so very foolish to assume that we can take care of ourselves, that we can govern our own lives, that we can make our lives better by our own efforts and our own ability. We confess these, Lord, this morning as pride and foolishness. Oh, Lord, grant us, I pray this morning, your spirit, that we might rest in Christ, who is our prophet, our priest, and our king, you, Lord Jesus, direct us through your word. You, Lord Jesus, draw us near to yourself with your, your caring intercession. You love us and constantly bring us near. You, Lord Jesus, have the power to triumph over all of our enemies for your good and ours. Open our eyes, I pray this morning, that we might receive from your hand the blessing of Jesus Christ, our great and good God. Do this, I pray, for your namesake and for the blessing of this congregation in your sovereign and holy name. Amen. 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 Well, look with me, if you will, at Ecclesiastes. And like I said, I want us to get up to speed here, if you will. So um, take your eyes and turn from uh, Ecclesiastes 7.13, which is there in the middle of the chapter, and look up for me, if you will, to the very last verse in chapter 6. The very last verse of chapter 6 is asking the question that chapter 7 is seeking to answer. And so look with me, if you will. There's actually two questions here, but chapter 7 is actually trying to answer this first question. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 12. For who knows... What is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? First question. Next question. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So this first question here in verse 12, who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? You want a life that is good. All of us do. We want the things that are good in this life. And if you think about it, every waking moment of your life, and maybe even some of the sleeping moments of your life, you're pursuing those things, not that are bad. None of us are crazy enough to pursue the things that are bad. No, we pursue the things that are good. We want the things that are good in life. 
And we want to receive and have all the good that this life has to offer. This is not only what we are seeking for, those who are um, good people, let's say. That's what the world would call us because we showed up at church this morning. But that's what every single individual in Jessup is seeking today. They're seeking the good life. Now, they have different definitions of it and have different understandings of it. And the reason is because of this. That which is good is not something that seems apparent. It's not intuitive what is, in fact, good in our lives. It is, in fact, the good that is in our lives is is uncommon. It is not evident. It is not apparent and transparent to us. We, we, We don't really know what the good is. And if you think about it, we, we've done this before. If we, if we talk to our children or talk to someone else that is a loved one in our life and, and they're pursuing something that they think is good and you know that if they pursue that, this is going to bring incredible consequences and difficulties in their life. It's not good, but they think this is what's going to make me happy. This is the thing that is good in my life. Look with me if you will. Again, this question is asked is, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life. If our lives are few, and these few days of our vain life are passing like a shadow, then we need to get as much good as quickly as possible, and we need to land there fast. We need to know what this is. And so the preacher, which he refers to himself as in the book of Ecclesiastes, he begins explaining to us these things that are good. And I want you to see how uncommon they are, how how not transparent or intuitive they are when the preacher begins explaining these to us. Look with me, if you will. He talks about things that are better. Things that are better. He talks about a better day. Look with me, if you will, in verse 1 of chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. Did you hear that? So, a funeral, the day of our death, is better than the day of birth. A birthday. That doesn't sound right, does it? N- none of us would, would think that is true. What, what's better, a funeral, the day of our death, or a birthday, the day of our birth? Well, it's the day of our birth. According to our passage here, the Word of God, the inerrant Word of God, what is better is the day of our death than the day of our birth. Then he goes on and talks about a better place. It is better to go to the house of mourning, again, a funeral, than to go to the house of feasting, a birthday party. For this is the end of all mankind, and the lives of, of uh, the, the and the and the living will lay it to heart. Not only a better day and a better place that seems contrary and not quite right, but now we have a, a better emotion. Look at verses three and four. Sorrow is better than laughter. Now, does that sound right? Doesn't sound right. Sorrow is better than laughter. The word of God says, "For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad." The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. And the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. A better day, a better place, a better emotion. Look with me in verses 5 through 6. A better word. For as the crackling of, excuse me, verse 5. It is better for a man to hear a rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Were you guys going into the week last week saying, you know what, I can't wait for the first person to rebuke me this week? No. You wanted songs of praise. Why is it here then that the passage is saying, our Bibles are telling us that a rebuke is better from the wise than 
to hear the songs of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity, verses 5 and 6. All of these show us that how we often think about what is good is very, actually it seems contrary to what we would assume automatically. Difficult things like death, funerals, sorrow, rebukes. You see, what what the preacher is saying here is that these things, they expose our hearts and they bring forward the really good things in our lives. They show us what really matters and they drive us away from the from from the frivolous things that are in life. Well, it not only talks to us about the fact that these good things, these better things, are often things that are not common or apparent, but he, he goes on and he says, not only are these things not common or apparent, not intuitive to us, but there's also hindrances and obstacles in this world that we live in to these good and better things that we're after. So look with me at verses 7 through 10. Verses 7 through 10. We see in verses 7 through 10 these obstacles or hindrances to this good life, the things that we're trying to pursue that are good. All right? Verse 7, we see that corruption in this world is a hindrance or a barrier to those things that are good. Verse 7, surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Verse 8, we see that impatience often is a hindrance or barrier to that which is good. Verse 8 says, Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. See, impatience. We want, we want the good now. How many of us know of people that want to pursue good and we want it like in the next hour? Not, let me pursue the good and let me do the things that are right and let me discipline my life and over the next 10 years, I'm going to have something that is good. Being patient about it. No, we want what's good and we want it now. We want it instantly says here in verse 8, Better is the end of a thing than the beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Another hindrance to that which is good is bitterness. Look with me at verse 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the, hearts, in the heart of fools. How many of us have a testimony of wanting to pursue that which is good, and a loved one or neighbor or someone has gotten in our way, we've become angry and embittered at them because they don't see that the good that I'm trying to pursue is something that I want and everyone is getting in my way and they become angry with that. And what does it do with that good that you're pursuing? It ruins it. It's a barrier. It's a hindrance to those things that are good. Many of us have have grabbed for something only to realize that when we have it, the things that we lost in order to have that good thing, quote-unquote, the things that we've had to lose in order to get that good thing, weren't really worth it. You see, these are hindrances. This is a wise preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's teaching us wisdom. And he's, he's tapping into our heart and saying, these things that you want that are good, they're not as apparent as you might think. In fact, if you automatically think it's good, then you need to back up and consider because they might be the opposite of what you're thinking. And, and also there's incredible hindrances to, these, to this good that's in the world. Verse 10 is the last hindrance or obstacle. Look with me. And this hindrance or obstacle is nostalgia. Nostalgia. Verse 10 says, Say not, why are the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this, 
How many of us have not rejoiced in the blessings we have today because we are reflecting on how good it was 20 years ago and how the world wasn't as crazy and insane as it is now? And so everything in your life now, when you gather together with your family, you're not enjoying the things that are blessings around you, but instead you're all grumbling about why the world is in such a heap of mess and it's nothing's good, nothing's right. We're allowing this, this hindrance of nostalgia to push out the things that are good in our lives. So we see here that this good is not something that's laying on the ground on top of the, on top of the soil, all right? It's not something that you can just go by and pick it up, and this is what it is. This is good. It's not as apparent to us. And there's also incredible obstacles to this. Now, many of us are reading in a Bible that have verses 1 through 13 formatted in a different way than verses 14 through the rest of the chapters, chapter 7. Some of your Bibles are formatted a little differently. And the reason is because verses 1 through 13 is Proverbs. And and some English translations try to set that apart and show you that this is a different kind of literature. And they do that by by framing the actual text on the page a little differently than it does with narrative. And so if you see here in verses 1 through 13, this is actually framed differently. It's formatted differently, these verses, because these are Proverbs. These are things that are, are truths that are, that are being laid before us and helped us to understand and have wisdom in this way. And notice, if you will, verse 13 is the last of those Proverbs. It's really bringing everything together. And it's saying this, if these things that we think are good are really not good, they're not apparent, they're not transparent, they're, they're not right in front of us, and there's all these obstacles that are before us if we try to pursue good, that there's all these things that are barriers for us as we want to go after this good, then what are we to do? Throw our hands up and say, you know what? Good is just never going to come to me. There are people, some of which that are maybe in your life, some that may be here this morning, that have gotten to that place. You have pursued good in all these different places. You've had hope in a relationship or or marriage or children or finances or job or all these things and you've placed all of your hope there and they disappointed you and you've tried something else and that disappointed you and so you've gotten to the point where you're just like you know what there's really no good here on earth there's nothing here to enjoy there's nothing here to to turn to God and praise for it's all just hard arduous and difficult well the psalmist or excuse me the the the, the preacher here in Ecclesiastes he does not believe that He wants us to turn and understand how we're to respond to this pursuit of that which is good. He asked the question, remember, at the end of chapter 6, verse 12, who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Who knows this good? Well, let me tell you who who it is that will know and can know this good that is in our lives. How can we know this? How can we pursue this without the hindrances? Verse 13 is going to help us understand this. And this is a short verse, but my prayer is that we will be able to go to work on this verse and do exactly what it's asking us to do, spend some time meditating, considering these things. Notice what it says. First, it gives us, and these are the two points for the sermon this morning, if you will. They're very easy, straightforward. I don't even know if you need to write them down. They're going to be so evident. First, we see in verse 13, that first phrase, we see a command. And then... The second phrase in verse 13 gives us a question. Point one, a command. 
Point two, a question. All right. So let's, uh, let's look together at this command that's been given to us. This command that helps us begin thinking about, meditating on, considering the works of God on earth. Now, when we talk about the works of God on earth, we're talking about something in the history of church that's been called the providence of God. And so this morning, I want us to reflect some, if you will, taking this verse and using it as a place where we can think and meditate on. And I want us to consider the providence of God this morning. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, this is a sermon I pray that isn't just for me. I needed to hear it again. But also for each and every one of us here this morning, I was praying, Lord, would you come by your spirit this morning and cause your word to rest on this people? That they may, they may find their rest in Christ and that they may rejoice with confidence that their God is a God of providence. Your life and mine is not flying out of control. It seems that way sometimes. It seems like a, a, just a wreck, <laughs> a mess. It seems like sometimes it's just flying all to pieces. No, no. The Lord our God is ordering and orchestrating our lives by His providence. And so this morning, let us consider the work of God. Verse 13. This, this command that's given to us. If the good that is in this life is that we desire to pursue is not obvious or apparent to any of us naturally and, 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 and easily, and then the call that the preacher gives to us this morning is to consider the work of our God. This glorious discipline, this discipline that many of us may not have ever heard of, this idea of meditating, spending time ruminating on, on, on the things of the Lord, thinking through, reflecting, we seldom do this. Why? Because we're distracted. That is an enemy given to us by Satan. Distraction. And many of us have something in our pocket that is being used in an incredible way to keep our minds from considering the work of God and instead remain utterly distracted the majority of our days. And so this morning, I'm calling you to something that we will not naturally do unless we make the effort to consider the work of our God, to, to lay aside the distractions and the things that are coming at us in our lives, the things that are coming at us in our devices, but also around us in way of our circumstances and the things that are happening. And I want to call us this morning to consider the work of, works of God. And as we do, I want us to understand that we will not best evaluate nor come to the appropriate conclusions about either the works of God nor our God and who He is without discerning first the works of God and the ways of God through the prism of His Word. It is the Word of God that causes us to rightly and faithfully consider the work of God. We can't just simply just simply look around. We'll, we'll get distracted and we will also go in the wrong direction. So almost every single time. We need God's Word as the prism in order for us to be able to see these works of God rightly and faithfully. The works of God display who He is and also how He seeks to relate to us as our Creator and we as His creation. 
It is clear enough from the context here that we are not to call to consider God's work of creation alone, but instead what we're called here to here is to consider God's providence in our lives. So it's one thing to go out and to look at creation and acknowledge that God created that and to affirm that. That doesn't seem what's being going on here. Instead, what the preacher is doing here in chapter 7 seems to be turning us away not not to consider creation, but to consider His providence, the works of God in the way He works in our lives. Now, this glorious and majestic contemplation is one that we should give our lives to, that we should give our minds to, that we should give our hearts to. Was there anything this week that you spent time on, maybe on the TV? I'm showing my age there. Even worse, the newspaper. I don't even know if those exist anymore. But especially on our devices, is there anything more glorious that you saw there that was there and then gone? Is there anything more glorious than Psalm 111? Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. Psalm 111 continues, He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of His hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and righteousness. Many of us have read that chapter, chapter 111 of Psalms. But have you spent time thinking about it, considering it, reflecting on it, allowing it to drive you to praise, adoration? These are the things that God is doing, even though so much in our world seems broken. He is still at work, doing glorious and wondrous things. So the foundation of providence, then, is the sovereign power of and an omnipotent reign of our God over all creation. His power has no bounds or limits in any way, and yet I'd like for us to focus on what we affirm when we declare, many of us have heard or maybe even read on Sunday mornings or other times, what's called the Apostles' Creed. Do you remember the Apostles' Creed? Right at the beginning of it, it says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. There, we speak first of the fact that God is our Father. This speaks of His benevolence, His love, His constant and sure, lavish mercy and grace toward each and every one of us. God is our Father and we are His children. We call Him Father, Not only in the Apostles' Creed, but we call Him Father as the Lord taught us to pray Himself. He said when we pray, we're to pray in this way, our Father in heaven. Because through Christ we are stirred to call upon Him and know that when we call upon Him, He is not an angry God that's insisting on for us to jump through hoops in order for Him to act. No, our God is a loving Father that we can with confidence come to Him and call upon His name and know that His hand is strong and mighty, but it's also loving and benevolent toward all of those who call upon His name. What a blessing it is. My son has recently moved away. 
He moved from Florida to Michigan. What in the world was he thinking? Well, that's exactly what his mama asked me when we drove away from the place, when we dropped him off at school there. And it is a good thing on Friday nights when we're able to call him, we do the video thing, and I'm able to see his face and hear him talk to us and enjoy him just speaking with us and talking with us. Why? Because I'm his father, and I love him, and I love the conversations that we have. Is that how you, is that how you understand your father in heaven? That in Christ you can call upon his name? And our Father in heaven is seeking to listen to us and hear us. His benevolence and love for us is great and lavish. Well, this God is not only a benevolent Father, but He also, according to the Apostles' Creed, He's the, I believe in God the Father Almighty. This speaks of the fact that He's infinite and absolute in His ability, not only to do anything that He wants, but more specifically, to speak of His absolute sovereign reign over everything in all creation. Now, connect this to, to this very truth. He's a God who loves you. And He's a God who's almighty. He's not against us. He's for us. In every way. All that God created in every event that will ever take place in His creation is under His universal, absolute, final reign and rule. Praise the Lord. Because sometimes it just doesn't look that way. So we begin, as we begin to consider the work of God, we must realize that the work of God is rooted and grounded in, in the God of His works. In other words, we are not simply attempting to know what God is doing and trace His hand and understanding what He's doing, but more important than that, when we consider the work of God, we're considering our God. We're considering who He is, not just what He has done for us. We're, we're relishing in the person of God, not just in what He can do for us. This turns us then to consider specifically this doctrine of providence. And I want to take a little bit of time and, and meditate on this because I think the text, in fact, calls us to do this. And there is wisdom for those who reflect on God's orchestration. God's ordering and, 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 and putting together all of these things in creation, all of our days, all of our thoughts, all of our actions. The Baptist Catechism that we read this morning, question 14, asks this, what are God's works of providence? You've heard this before. You've been reading through. God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. And in this answer, I want us to notice three divisions. These are historically how people have thought through and ordered this understanding of providence. These three divisions is kind of the scope of how God acts, and they are categorized in this way, and I think they'll be helpful for us this morning. So let's think about these. In this, in this answer to question 14, it gives us really three categories of how we're to think about providence. And these are big, fancy words, but they're worth, worth us thinking about, especially if we're going to be considering the works of God. Let's consider the work, works of God in the first category, and that is His preservation. His preservation. It's right there in our catechism answer. Answer 14. His preservation means that God has not only created all things, but that He provides and cares for all those things that He's created. 
And he does this always. There's never a moment that he looks away. There's never a moment that we're in danger of doing something outside of what God ordains. We hear, we heard, we heard of his sure care over and over again when we hear Jesus preaching in his sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. All of us, many of us, maybe even have memorized this passage because it's so precious in how the Lord cares for his people. Matthew 6, Jesus teaching his disciples that we're getting ready to go through a very difficult time. Just a few years later, as Jesus was going to the cross, how in the world is all the world going to be coming undone? Jesus, the very Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is going to be going to the cross. Everything seems to be coming apart. Does God even care of what's going on? Matthew 6, verse 26, Jesus teaches his disciples earlier in his ministry, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? The answer is yes. There's anybody here this morning saying, well, I'm not sure. No, the answer, the answer is yes, you are. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Anybody in here anxious about stuff? Worried about things that are happening? You know, you're, you're doing a lot there. You're adding all kinds of stuff to your life. No, you're not, right? We're not, none of us do that. None of us. It says, and in, 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 in which uh, you being anxious can add a single hour to the span of his life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God clothes, clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more? You hear that? Will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you have little faith. Now, what are you supposed to be believing in? Is it that, well, things will get better. My life isn't going to be hard all the time. Um, it, it can't be this way all, always. That's not what you're supposed to be believing in. What we're supposed to be placing our faith in is a God who's our Father and who is Almighty. Consider the work of God. So not only is our preservation spoken of here in our catechism and as we consider God preserving our lives and preserving all that's around us, He also governs these things. Governance, so we have preservation, and then second, we have governance. This is the second category of providence. means that the Lord directs, rules, and orders all things. Now, not just that. It's not just that the Lord directs, orders, and rules all things. To His intended, perfect and good purpose and end. You know the Lord is doing something good? And, uh, and, and I don't know, uh, maybe, maybe you, but the Lord doesn't feel obligated to clue me in and let me know that. Um, sometimes I look at things and I'm like, this is a dumpster fire. This is horrible. This is hard. This is difficult. But the Lord is ordering, directing, and ruling all things as His intended perfect will orchestrates and it's coming to an end that is His. Ephesians 1.11 says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. God is not only preserving us, He's not only governing us, but here's the third word, and this is one that you likely didn't use this week while you were pumping gas and talking to a friend. 
This third $10 word is called concurrence. Concurrence. This is another category, the third category of providence that is usually spoken of. And when we think of providence, we think of this understanding of not only preservation, not only governance, but also concurrence. Now, what does that mean? This understanding simply helps us see how God and man are working together in God's divine providence. In other words, we're not just robots going about doing what everything God's telling us to do. It is, it is not as if, this concurrence is not as if God is working, doing his part, and man is working, doing his part, our part, and each of us are helping each other out as we go along. No, no, no. Concurrence instead, this truth helps us affirm that nothing in creation can happen apart from God. And yet, it also affirms what we call second causes of creation. And in fact, it tells us that everything that we do are real actions and that they, that we are going to be responsible for the actions that we participate in. Now, many of you, I assume, have heard or actually read and, and have, have spent time thinking about the glorious story of Joseph at the end of at the book of Genesis, hadn't you? That, that's a great story. Joseph is despised by his brothers, right? Deceived by them, thrown into a pit, drug out of the pit, sold into slavery, goes to Potiphar's house, gets told a lie about, gets thrown in jail. Don't worry, the, 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 the cupbearer will get him out. Oh, the cupbearer forgets about him. He doesn't get out until later. And then he becomes the most influential man in the powerhouse nation of Egypt. Incredible providences taking place there. Incredible things. Much of which, when you read through that, you're like, Joseph is on the end of a string. There's nothing that he's orchestrating and ordering. Everything that's happening to him is being dumped on him, and he's just having to react. Is that how some of you guys feel sometimes? At the end of Genesis chapter 45, he tells his brothers that he is Joseph, and they are beside themselves. Remember that? Listen to how Joseph describes all of those amazing things that took place over those many years in his life. So Joseph said to his brothers, this is Genesis 45, Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. You sold me into Egypt, he says. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. You see, they're culpable. They're responsible for their actions. For this is what he says in Genesis chapter 45, verse 5. Joseph says, For God sent me before you to preserve life. Concurrence. We have real responsibility. God is ordering and orchestrating things to his wonderful and glorious end. What a blessing. So, we have here this command. My encouragement to you is to take up this command. <clears throat> what better day to do that than on Lord's Day? All week long, you're in the rat race. You're going as hard as you can. You're fulfilling your responsibilities. You're doing everything you need to do. You're going after all the things that are pressing on you. On Lord's Day, our Lord has called us to rest. And one of the best ways we can do that is to set aside time and, and maybe go for a walk or maybe take your Bible and read through the latter part of Genesis, those last several chapters in the book of Genesis, and see again how God was ordering and orchestrating Joseph's life. And then, and then think back through your own life and say, Lord, you were doing the same thing. There are so many opportunities for me to just fall off the cliff. And yet, you ordered and orchestrate things in such a way 
that though these days that I may be in right now are hard, they're good. They're good. You're teaching me things, Lord. You're, you're bringing me to faith. So this is the command. Let's turn now to the question. To the question here in verse 13. The command was, consider the work of God. The command we see here, who can make straight what he has made crooked? We have to consider the work of God and we have a better foundation when we consider the works of God and meditate on that question. And once we've considered and reflected on that question or that command, consider the works of God, and once we consider that, once we think through that, once we uh, spend time there, we're better able then to answer this question. We're be better suited and fortified, and we have a foundation now under us so that we can ask this question, who can make straight what he has made crooked? Now, recognize what is emphasized here. What's emphasized here is, is who? Who is it that can make straight what God has made crooked? What person is out there? Well, no one. No one can change what God has ordained. The question confirms that there is not one person able to make straight who is able to withstand who is able to correct or alter the works of God. What He has made, He has made for sure, and those things will happen. What He has made crooked in our lives cannot be made straight by us. Now, I need you to hear that. All of us who think that our responsibility is to fix our lives or to fix somebody else's life or to make things better, that we usually put our hands on and make worse. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? The question confirms that there is indeed no one. When the preacher in Ecclesiastes speaks of this idea of crooked, he is not speaking of something that's morally wrong. No, no, not, not at all, because God is neither the author of sin, nor has he fellowship with any that is in sin, right? We know that. No, crooked here instead means those sorrows, those difficulties, those struggles and pains, those places that you would rather not be, and yet here you are. These are the, if you will, as Thomas uh, uh, Boston said, these are the crooks that are in our lot, right? Let us ask this question. Let me ask you this question. What one thing in your life would you change if you had the power to do it? Now, there are some of you here this morning that instantly went right to something. And then there's others here this morning that have so many, you're sorting through which one you want to pick. I don't want to make light of our hardships this morning. I don't want to make light of the grievances and the struggles and the pain and the sorrow and the agony that so many, not only in this room, but also in our culture, in our society, in our, in our community, that are going through. It is horrifying. Let me ask this question a slightly different way because that's actually not the question that's being asked here in our text. The question in our text is not, what one thing would you change if you had the power to change it? That's not even the issue that's being brought for us. And when I ask this second question, I want you to understand that this question is going to help us understand whether we are, if we have a biblical understanding of providence 
And if that understanding has left our head and started seeping into our heart. All right. So I'm going to ask the second question, and it's going to be a good test for all of us of whether our understanding of providence is biblical, but also whether that understanding has left our head and started seeping into our hearts. Let me ask the question that I think this text is asking, and let me ask it this way. If you knew that every sorrow and difficulty or struggle was absolutely the perfect and wise, loving plan of your almighty God, would you still want it to be changed? You see where we are, brothers and sisters? We live in a society that sadly is so therapeutic that we believe that any hardship or struggle that comes into our lives must be from something other than what God is doing to create good in us. Every person here this morning has a crook in his or her life, a difficulty, a hardship that you would love to remove if, in fact, you were able. And many of us spend much of our time seeking to do that very thing. Yet today, it still presses on you and in your family. Why? Why is it still there? Have you knelt beside your bed with your wife asking for the Lord to heal her? And when you were done praying, knowing that she still wasn't, what are we going to do the rest of that day? What are we going to do the rest of that day? She isn't healed. We prayed for that. We're going to trust the Lord today. We're going to trust the Lord today. Why is, why is that still there? Why is that crook still in your life? Because who can make straight what he has made crooked? In his goodness and in his wisdom, in his providence and in his faithfulness. The point of our texts, hear me, hear me. The point of our text is not to throw up our hands and to submit to deterministic fatalism. Nor is it to say that we are to just give up and say, well, good riddance to everything, I'm just going to let whatever hit me hit me. No. Still pray, brothers and sisters, that the Lord will deliver you. Pray and ask for the Lord to bring deliverance and relief, for the Lord to grant faith. You know, this is exactly where it seems, why is it that we think that this is odd and unusual? This is exactly where the majority of the saints live always. Paul himself had this crook in his lot. He called it a thorn in his flesh, right? He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in, my, in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded, with the Lord about it. Well, this is Paul. And he's begging the Lord. Three times he begged the Lord to remove this thorn. Paul and all of his faith and all of his might, the Lord must have been be willing to grant this. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power 
is made perfect in weakness. That's hard. That's nothing that we would choose. And I, I'm not saying go out and look for weakness and look for hardship and look for crooks. Don't worry about that. They'll come. And the Lord's calling us to understand that those weaknesses are places where His mercy will abound. Therefore, I will boast, Paul says, all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Are you boasting in your weaknesses? Or are you still at the place where you complain more about them? Why, Paul says? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God is our heavenly, almighty Father. No, we just don't throw our hands up and pretend like everything is okay even though it isn't. We don't put a smile on and act like it's okay. I told that dad over the phone this week, you're supposed to be crying. It's supposed to hurt. You're not going to, this is a successful businessman. He can make all kinds of things work. And I told him, I said, you are so sufficient in all the other realms of your life. I want you to know, brother, you do not have to be here. This is going to take a while. And you're going to have to walk through this and this is going to be hard. Lean into the Word of God. Lean into God's people. Cry out to the Lord. Should we demand God to remove these struggles from us or else? Do we proceed, maybe in our lives because of the struggles and difficulties in our life, do we proceed with bitterness, even simmering discontent and dread, doubting God's love for us? There are those of us that may be here this morning that think that your obedience is a negotiation with God. If I do all the right things, if I raise my kids right, if I do all the things, bring them to church and give them the Bible and read to them and do this and family worship and I teach them the catechism and I do all these things, then God is obligated to make them what I think they should be. Some of us have lived long enough to know that that's not true. Our obedience is not a negotiation with God. God is holy and sovereign and He does what He wills. Our responsibility is to lovingly, graciously, be faithful, put one foot in front of the other, and praise our God for being who He is. We are to turn instead to our good and merciful Lord Jesus in prayer, crying out to Him, asking Him for faith. When your faith seems to be flickering and almost out, you're in a familiar place with many, many other saints that have gone before you. Trust His tender love. He is not being harsh. He's not trying to press and squash you. Have you ever heard anybody say, um, God isn't going to give you anything you can't handle? Well, that's crazy. I think everything God gives me I can't handle. I mean, I, it just keeps driving me back to prayer. Again, two weeks ago, our congregation, sitting beside a hospital bed, with a 38-year-old man that just found out he went to the hospital because he had pneumonia. And they told him, you've got cancer all over your body. 38 years old. I said, brother, this is where we have faith. We talk about faith all the time, but this is where we're going to trust the Lord. Him and his wife are precious examples of faith. It's amazing over the last two weeks how they just they, they face the very difficult providence that they've in. And they're praising the Lord because of it. In fact, I think he may even be at church this morning. I, I hate I missed him because I think they're going to be at church for the first time this morning. Now, this particular horror, uh, sorrow or hardship that's in our lives, 
This is not an uncommon place. In fact, this is where the saints throughout the centuries have found that it's not only important for us to acknowledge these truths, but we also need to sing them to one another. We need to be reminding each other often of these things. That's why we sang this morning, Whatever my God ordains is right. He never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know He will not leave me. I take content what He hath sent. His hand can turn my griefs away. And patiently I wait His day. His hand can turn my griefs away. Sometimes we need to sing that. Sometimes we need to be singing that to one another. Encouraging one another with these truths. That's why we have these hymns in our hymn book. Hymn 66. Get you a hymns of grace hymn book and take it home and read through the hymns as part of your devotions. These old hymns are men and women who've walked through very difficult times and they sing of the good God who's brought them through it. On Monday of this week, got a video from one of our mamas. She has a two-year-old. I think he may be three now. CJ has autism. And they're having a tough time with him. They're trying to figure out how do you discipline him and what do you say no to and what do you say yes to. And Mom and Dad, Dad, of course, had great plans of, of him being a football player. Right? And, um, and CJ's probably not going to be a football player. Mama sent me, her, his mama sent me a video on Monday of CJ singing one of the hymns that we sing in our church. He may not be a football player, but he knows the truths of God because he's sitting in God's house with God's people. It's amazing what the Spirit can do even to those people that we say, he's not learning anything. He doesn't need to be in the worship service. No, he's there and he's singing that hymn on Monday morning because he's hearing and receiving the things of God and the Spirit of God's working in them. Praise be His name. Don't underestimate the opportunity as we gather and sing on Lord's Day that what we're doing as we sing in is we're actually, we're actually preaching to one another these truths that are God's truths. We're not just trying to make it through the song or keep up with the person that's singing better or trying not to sing too loud to embarrass ourselves. We're actually trying to encourage one another, the saints, because there's those that are sitting here this morning that have gone through quite a week and you need to hear somebody else singing that truth because you don't believe it yourself. And you need somebody else to just tell you that. And so you're able to hear these things. Some of you are aware that um, we have the Baptist Catechism, and we use it in our church as well. There were literally hundreds of catechisms um, that have been put out by Baptists over the years. And one that was put out close to the time of the Baptist Catechism um, was a catechism called an Orthodox Catechism. And Hercules Collins, which is one of the framers of our confession, actually took the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a Presbyterian Catechism, and he, and he baptized it, if you will, and, and, and made it in, into a Baptist catechism. And it's, it's, called the, it's called an Orthodox catechism. And it is a beautiful rendering. It has a lot of the, um, a lot of the Heidelberg in it, but it also has um, Baptist distinctives in it. Question 26 of the Orthodox catechism says this. What do you understand by the providence of God? What do you understand by the providence of God? God's providence is His mighty an ever-present power, whereby, as with His hand, He still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures. 
So he's, God's taking care of all of that. And so governs them that, listen, that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed, all things, all things, come not by chance. Listen to this last phrase. But by His fatherly hand. Praise be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you and we thank you for being a God who orders and orchestrates our lives. You love us and you care for us. Oh, that you would, by the power of your Spirit, press these words upon our heart today. May we consider your works and may we understand that the things, the sorrows, the struggles, the the difficulties that are in our lives are coming by your fatherly hand and we can trust you in them. Oh, that you would do this for your glory and for our good. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. The next hymn, as I'm looking here, is hymn 404. 404.